coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. The color of the ambient light affected the extent to which a trout was, was attracted to a fly. And how, how that came about in some measure was he had he used scuba divers and they were diving in a pool which was up against a cliff face, a sort of almost orangey cliff face. And the setting sun was bouncing light off that orange cliff face. And the only fly that was working was an orange one. That was Ed Herbst on LaFontaine's Theory of Attraction. Small stream fly fishing, the history of light rods, and a South African superstar today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for swung fly techniques, two-handed casting, and anatomous fish. Find out why Waters West has built a cult-like following around their fly time materials and why they are the go-to resource for the OP and beyond. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash waterswest right now to check in with Ed and Kyle and get all geared up to get on the water. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you get a chance, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or on Spotify. This doesn't take long. You can also leave a review on any app you're using. This is a great way to support this podcast. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go teabag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's Anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Ed Herbst takes us into a step-by-step into small stream fly fishing today. We hear about his long history in fly fishing and what it's been like leading the way in small stream fly fishing. We find out who has influenced him over the years and some of his writings. Uh, We talk about the society, which is a big uh, part of what he does. And uh, we just dig into it today. This is a great one. Plus, we get the background on what apartheid was like uh, firsthand from Ed. Here we go. Ed Herbst from the Cape Piscatorial Society. How are you doing today, Ed? I'm good. Uh, Cape Town's wet and windy, but uh, yeah, glad to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm uh, happy to have you on here. We pretty much get our guests now from referrals from either other guests we've had and other listeners and you know, definitely a number of people have mentioned you. And so it's good to get you on here. We we also love going around the world. We, we have a majority of our listeners are in the U.S., but I know, you know, part of where you live, we definitely have some listeners down there as well. We're going to dig into small streams today and everything there. But um, but yeah, before we get into all that, let's take us back real quick on fly fishing. How Tell us how you got into fly fishing and how you came to be having writing books and, you know, and everything you have going now. It's a long story. For some for some reason, my, my mother, who was a widow, bought me a, a fishing rod and took me to the harbour in Durban. And she, she, we were very poor, and uh, she couldn't really afford the bus fare. But heaven knows why, she took me down there, and I, I caught a rock cod. And uh, after that, um, there weren't any more trips to Durban Harbour. But I discovered a place nearby that had goldfish ponds. 
So I would sneak in there and chum the goldfish and attach a twig, a piece of bread paste and, and a line and a hook to a twig. And when I could see the park keeper was nowhere around, I would throw this into the water and the goldfish would gobble the bread and, and I, I'd watch with some delight while the, the twig sort of flashed around the little pond and then I'd pull it out and take the goldfish off and put it back. So I was a catch and release fly fisherman from, from an early age. And then I went through the bait fishing and the spin casting for, um, for, uh, for bass. And I always remember the revelation of my first cast with a, with a spinning rod. I mean, it was just amazing, throwing from here to the horizon with no effort at all. And then I, I, was, a, I was a broadcast reporter, and my company, the uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation, which is a sort of local equivalent to the BBC, transferred me down to Cape Town. And, that, that, and there I joined the Cape Piscatorial Society, and, and that's where uh, my fly fishing started. But I was in the mid-30s when I started fly fishing, and it was, it was quite, quite, quite a rocky start. I didn't know much about it in my my first trip was in in early spring when the river we get our rain in winter, and so the river was still quite high and still quite cold, and I was wearing sneakers and I kept falling in and I thought if I'm going to survive in this, I have to find proper footwear. And at the same time, I, I thought, uh, as reporters do, uh, you know, I, I, perhaps I can help somebody else uh, uh, from experiencing this. And so I started writing for Piscator. I'd been a print journalist before, uh, and so I write, started writing for Piscator, which was the journal of the Cape Piscatorial Society. Um, we trace our origins to 1906. We were officially confirmed in 1931, and the first issue of Piscator came out in 1948, and I, I was editor for the last 10 years before the uh, the printing costs became too excessive, and there was so much stuff online that it was superfluous. So that's 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 the background. And um, uh, I read a story on on in in a back issue of Piscator called Lilliput Water about somebody who fished with a Leonard baby Catskill and a little Orbis CFO two reel, and it just summed up for me what the whole small stream ethos was about. And uh, I then met a fellow CPS member, uh, Stephen Boschoff, who is a superb split cane craftsman. And we began a joint journey to try and find the, the ultimate small stream fly rod and reel. And that, that continues. So, uh, so that, that, that was the background. Amazing. I love that. What's the, well, first, let me, let me just say, so you're in, are you currently in uh, South Africa? Yes, Cape Town, South Africa. Yeah, you're in Cape Town, so you're right on. This will be good. So I want to dig into a little bit on that. But um, but the small stream ethos, talk about what that is. Like for somebody that doesn't know much about small streams, what is what is that ethos? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's what, what you make of it. But Oh, nice. For me, uh, it's about stalking really I, I think what i wanted to to replicate in in my 30s was the excitement that i used to experience as a schoolboy um, hunting with an air rifle you know creeping along inch by inch scared of making a crackle of a leaf seeing the fish and and casting to it uh, 
Earl McLean wrote a beautiful uh, chapter in The Practical Fly Fisherman. He called it Creep and Crawl Fishing. And uh, it, it has, a, it, it has a, a, a special attraction of its own. Small streams are very intimate. They're, they're often cloistered by bushes. They're difficult to fish. Uh, the fish are not small, but they're very spooky. And so uh, that, that's what, um, what the small stream ethos is about. It's about, um, I think, um, Rolf Nylander's uh, film, The Great Shaku Hunters, uh, sums it up for me. It's what the Japanese fly anglers excel in. I mean, they... Oh, right. Like the Tenkara. In some ways, but in specifically in, in, in fly fishing terms, they that they have small mountain streams and a, and, a, and a very big population. So it's quite a privilege uh, there to, there's a lot of fishing pressure. And they stalk and they are absolutely masters at, at slackline casts and they build special rods. They moved away from Tonkin cane to Chinese cane to, to Madaki, which is a Japanese cane, because they felt the Tonkin cane was too powerful for the, the short costs. I mean, often you, you're casting with three foot of line uh, beyond the, 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 the top guide. And it's all about accuracy. It's all about not being seen. Uh, it's, it's trout hunting at its best uh, is, is what, I would, what I would call. There you go. There you go. And that's awesome. And we've done some trout hunting episodes. We just had Mike Lawson on recently and took us back to the Henry's Fork. We've been in that part of the world quite oh, a bit. Oh, but he's, he's a bigger of a man. Oh, no, no, this is good. I think that's the cool thing about all these, you know what I mean, this, the way that the world is now, the fact that we could do this and get a little perspective on your neck of the woods, right? And, um, but you, let, let's, let's lay this to rest now. So we talked about Tinkara. Is, is Tinkara fly fishing? What's your take on it? Oh, I love it. I love it. It came in after I became too, too ill to fly fish. But there's a wonderful, wonderful movie made by Yvonne Chouinard with, uh, an Italian uh, fly fisher. Now, keep in mind that the, the Tinkara ethos, the reverse hackle fly, uh, existed uh, in, in, in Italy. It, it grew up simultaneously with what was happening in, in medieval Japan. So they, they fished in uh, the, the Valsessiana Valley. They fished in the same way. And Yvonne Schoenard has done this wonderful movie uh, on this elderly man who 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 still follow who still uses horsehair lines and that sort of thing, so it's 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 tremendously versatile. It's delicate. Um, it's just a, entirely within what I call the small stream ethos. Uh, it's just that the casting and and the landing is 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 a bit limited. But I mean, it 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 just uh, the long rod and the delicate tip offers such advantages. Uh, you know, you can you pick it up and you put it down here, and you pick it up and you the fly and you put it down there, and it's it's also a, a soft hackle uh, traditional, which, which is uh, which, which is wonderful. So um, there are a few people who who fish tenkara here, but I think the majority of them actually like to to reel and cast. Yeah, I think that's you know what I think part of the tenkara the the problem with tenkara is is that I think most of us fly fishermen and women. Are, uh, they love we love gear you know what i mean like the reels is one thing it's like man i love the more bring me give me more gear i don't want less gear but i, I hear you on, on yvonne chenard um we're, we're hopeful that uh we're, we're working on hopefully getting him on the podcast uh you know soon but 
I think, was it called Pescator? Do you remember the name of that uh, movie he, they came out with? So, something like that. Something like that. Jonathan. Yeah, I think it was Pescator Completo, the, the complete fish. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's, absolutely. Well, uh, one, one can imagine that uh, with his resources, it, it would be a beautifully crafted film. And it is. Yeah. It is. It is. No, I love it. We have a... Um, the Patagonia thing, every time, I feel like whenever we do a podcast, if Yvonne or Patagonia is mentioned, I feel like I'm doing a good job because, uh, you know, they're such a big player in, you know, conservation and everything. So this is this is great. I'm glad you brought that up. So I want to talk fly rod and reel. You mentioned like the perfect rod, but let's let's segue that in with the delicate fly fisher. You have this book that's going to be coming out. It might even be out by the time this episode goes live. Talk about that book. I'm guessing gear is one chapter in that book. Talk about the chapters of that book. If you've got them there, you could tell us a little bit about it. Well, the, the first bit is, is autobiographical, and it it, it, uh, it it looks at the past 40 years of, of fly fishing in South Africa, where in the, the 1990s we experienced regime change, and from then on things colonial were, were strictly taboo, and so fly fishing was seen as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a sport for the elite and all that sort of thing, and, and there was a lot of negativity around that, which... Uh, and as a consequence of that, we we um, constituted an organisation called FOSAF, the Federation of Southern African Fly Fishers. That's the equivalent, say, of your Trout Unlimited. We're a lobby group. We've just won a series of court cases against government who, without consultation, wanted to call trout in, uh, uh, call trout invasive, which would mean that you weren't allowed to have them, transport them, breed them. Uh, and and fly fishing fly fishing tourism in South Africa generates millions, particularly for small for small rural communities where, where unemployment is high. So that that's the first chapter. Um, the second chapter is, is called Hanida here, and it talks to the more enormous influence that American fly angling writers have had I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one but I mean I, to, I when I started fly fishing Ernest Schweibitz double volume trout came out and and we used to get fly fishermen John John uh, I think Randall's Randall's magazine which was something something we always looked forward to we got trout and salmon as well and uh, Dave Engelbretson wrote an article called uh, boron update and he mentioned uh, a rod by a Japanese guy called Henry Hanida. Uh, and he said this rod was was delicate, four-piece. The boron-graphite ratio in each piece differed so that the, the action could be tailored. Now, that, that's something that goes back to bamboo rods where the Japanese would use different types of bamboo in between, in, you know, in, in the sections to tailor the action. And... Uh, I, I phoned him and got hold of him, and I always remember it was about 1982. Um, sort of in wonder when this voice said Hanida here, and I ordered that rod. And if you go if you go onto onto my Instagram account, you'll see lots and lots of pictures. And to me, it was just perfect. To, to this day, it remains the fly rod uh, that, that I love the most. I also got one of Don Phillips's uh, solid boron rods, and he wrote an article for the skater. Um, but the handle was what was what was most specific a, appealed to me about everything else. It was a reversed half wells, basically a Coke bottle shape. 
and it tapered right down into the blank. So it was very versatile. What it meant is that if you wanted to 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 cast into the wind, you you moved your thumb up to the swelled portion, uh, or if you wanted to have a very delicate cast short range, you could move your forefinger right down onto the blank. And so I always thought I'd I'd like to to replicate that. And then around that time in the 1980s, uh, a friend of mine, Tom Sutcliffe. Um, went to Vermont, uh, spoke to Lee Perkins, got the Orvis franchise for South Africa and opened the first uh, shop, which was solely uh, devoted to fly fishing. Mm. Roy, so there was an Orvis shop? In, in South Africa. Oh, wow. In, 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 in South Africa in, in sort of around about 1982. Now, what Lee Perkins did was, was he, he spoke to the late Howard Steer so Lee Perkins told me that he'd, he'd asked Howard Steer to produce the first commercially built uh, two-weight fly rod. That was the ultra-fine. There had been two-weights before that. I think the Leonard Baby Catskill was a two-weight. And, of course, the ultra-fine came out, and it just popped my skull. I mean, it was just, just so lovely. And then he followed that up with a one-weight, and then they followed it up with a one-ounce. Uh, and that was the start of the Whisper Rod era. And 10 years elapsed before Sage brought out the Nortweight. So, and I think they, they linked up uh, with Cy Anglers uh, to produce the line. Everything was in the line. Uh, without the line, you couldn't make the rod. And uh, I, I was very excited when I heard this news. And I, I sent them a fax, which they said was the longest in the company's history. And uh, they, I, I duly got my hands on one. And, and at about that time, I was fishing one of the local streams and found out that a fellow Cape Piscatorial Society member was there and linked up with him. And it was a most serendipitous meeting because we thought the same and we both had these ambitions to, to develop ever lighter fly rods. Uh, I mean, Bob Bachman has said that the average brown trout in America grows to 14 inches, and it's got a small mouth. These are not big fish that we're fishing with. Yeah. And what I wanted, what I wanted was Gary Borger in presentation says, the hand must cut the reel. It must almost envelop the reel. But that's very difficult in in most rods nowadays because you, you get a reel seat. And you get a metal, uh, a metal uplocking ring, and then you get a, a wooden reel seat or a plastic reel seat, and that junction, particularly for the fishing we do, because what what our fishing is not competitive fishing, but the small stream ethos is we, we we weigh the bubble line basically, and and it's short costs. It's it's two costs a second, very short two costs a minute uh, sometimes, very short drifts in in great heat. So ideally, you, you make it as light as possible. Uh, Marinaro said that you know having having the lightest reel possible was 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 important. And what I asked Steve to do was to give me the coke bottle shape of the reversed half wells, but I wanted a shelf of cork over the reel seat, so that when the back of my hand moved back, it didn't land on plastic or metal, and um, Tom Sutcliffe called that the palm grip. Now, what is interesting there was 
around about that time, but sometimes, sometime afterwards, a full-page, color-page ad appeared on the back of Flyfish, Flyfishman magazine for what was called the beaver tail or the arc handle. And it was precisely that idea of the shelf of cork extending across the, the top of the reel. But it, it never seemed to catch on. Oh. So you had a regular, the reel seat, which was either metal or wood or whatever it was, but you're saying this one was just a full, like the cork. It was almost like part of the handle was the reel seat. Well, what, what happens is that the front reel foot uh, fits into the handle in a little, with a little, little, little hooded metal uh, container. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that style. I did that. So it was closer to the handle. And then the, the cork shelf extends across the top and the rear and then stops. And then the, the rear sliding ring That's right. uh, holds the rear reel foot. So it's just extraordinarily comfortable, but it's not commercially viable in the slightest. And why is that? Why is that not? Because it seems like I see where you're going with this. You're going with, you know, like Gary Borger said, We'll put a link to the show notes of the episode we had with Gary a while back. But basically, Gary said, you want to cup the reel because it... Why is that? Why would you want to cup the reel versus just holding onto the handle? I think because it gives you greater control. And and Gary spoke about what he called the comfort of cork. And 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 that's what it's all about. And um, But, uh, I mean, it, if, you're a, if you're a rod builder and you're, you're trying to make and sell five reels a day, Spend a whole day crafting a handle like that is, 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 simply, oh, is right. simply not not on the cards. You you you've got uh, companies like Mudhole or whatever, and you buy a, a wooden reel seat and you buy metal sliding rings uh, which are bright silver, uh, all that chrome, uh, and uh, which is flashing and 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 scaring trout. So it it's purely falls within the realms of of, of custom rod building. And um, uh, a, a lot of the information on the development of, of, of this idea can be found on the Cape Piscatorial Society oh, website in, in the Tackle great. Uh, folder. Yeah, I think the article is called The One-Off, One-Weight. And then, of course, Sage came out with the Northweight. And that was at around the time that I met Steve. And I said to Steve, can you make me this rod with this handle? And um, uh, Scott sent us a few uh, blanks there, there some two weight blanks. I think we we kept going. Steve, Steve, I think and who's at one Steve? stage. Who's got, Steve? Steve, Steve. Sorry, Stephen Boshoff. Okay. Uh, his handle, his handle. Uh, he he uh, he's highly regarded, for example, by the Italian uh, bamboo rod making association. He's had an article in there. What's name? And. Um, so we 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 worked on we worked on that, but Steve then went off on a different tangent. He he doesn't like synthetics. He uh, he took uh, at round about the time that Sage brought out the Northway. And what's the Norway? Sorry to keep interrupting here, but uh, what is the ad? Um, what is that? How do you spell that? The Norway? How do you spell that for Sage? They they called it the Ortweight, O U G H T weight. Oh, the Ortweight, yeah, O U G H T, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it was the first uh, rod for a sixty grain line, um, and then and it, then then they, then they brought out the, the 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 ones and the twos. They were, I think, in that sort of SL SLT. They made one less than one 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 less than than Orbis. Gotcha. You know? <laughs> That's right. How light could you go? Yeah, the difference really in, in line weight is probably 
the weight of an aspirin, but neither here nor there. It was a good advertising ploy. So it seems like, tell, here's a question for you, Ed. It seems like that, you know, the lighter is, I mean, that's why Tengara seems like it's, it's good. I, and we have another, we have a... Um, one of our sponsors on the podcast, Maverick Fly Fishing, they have like, it's more like set up for Euronymphing, but it's a super lightweight rod, a Euronymphing rod. And, and the reel is this real unique reel where it's almost not a reel. It's so light, you can't even feel it. It feels like that sort of thing might be good for what you're talking about, small streams. Is it good maybe to have, you know, the lighter? The, is that kind of where you're going with this? The lighter, the better? No, no, not, not at all. Not okay. at all. What competition fly fishing has has developed, and I, I feel that there's been a, a generational schism in in the approach to fly fishing. I mean, Walton said, "Study to be quiet," and I remember watching a movie of of the youth championships uh, being held in Czechoslovakia, and the the guy that they were focused on was at the, on the other side of a, of a wide river, and he'd obviously found quite a deep pocket against the far bank. And he, he yanked uh, uh, a trout out of the water, caught it in a huge net in the air, then plunged back towards the controller, plumes of water all over the place, left the trout with what's the name, and then plunged back into the water. I've heard of, of people swimming to get to, on, to, to good places on the other side of, <laughs> at, on the on the other side of the river and and what they what they're doing there is they're using 10 foot and 11 foot rods because you uh, in competition fly fishing you're allowed a leader which is which is twice as long as your rod and so the small stream ethos is about small rods seven foot three weight would say, say be the, the, the sweet spot uh, the competition fly fisher is 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 not casting really is using a water to water lob there's a question for you Ed. another good one is that so is euro nymphing fly fishing it's your branch of fly fishing and uh, i mean if america has a bass market master circuit why should europe and the commonwealth countries and america itself not have a competition fly fishing for for trout yeah um, yeah yeah well and i'm getting to more i'm getting to more not necessarily the competition thing but more like if you're not casting a fly rod, is it really still fly fishing? Well, if you're flipping, which is what a lot of it is, if you're fishing side on, uh, I mean, Chuck Fothergill called it high sticking. Um, it's it's like uh, trotting for grayling, where you 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 have a little porcupine quill float and a, and a worm, and you you let it drift down, and when the little porcupine quill float goes down, you 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 strike. Except that if you're fishing side on. Uh, with with uh, with contact nymphing. Uh, to to me, to me if I, maybe I should ref define that better. To me, yeah. <laughs> the small stream ethos, the small stream ethos, is a visual form of fly fishing. For me, the tug is not the drug. I don't want to feel the fish strike. I want to see it strike. I want to see it rise, or I want to see this the strike indicator just slow down. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. and as I say, the the competition fly fishers. Um, I mean, years ago, years ago, uh, Joe Humphreys wrote an article for, for Fly Fisherman about using monoline for, for, for uh, what's the name? And he said it has immense advantages. You can feel the thing. It, it, it sinks quickly. It gets the nymph down. And there was absolute outrage. Oh, there was. People, people were mad at Joe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But nowadays, all they've done, because that's what 
helps in competition fly fishing is they just use a level line with a very thin plastic coating. So much so that on, on cageless reels, it, it tends to slip off the reel. So the latest hardy reel is a caged reel, most specifically designed so that the line won't slip off it because it's so thin. So it's a completely different branch. It's a, it, it has a completely different objective. And the objective is to catch as many fish in as short a space of time as possible. I have no, I have no, 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 no qualms or quarrel with that. Uh, it's just very different to the creep and crawl fishing, stalking with a light, little light line fly rod and a small little royal wolf or something yeah, like exactly, that, which is, which great is what appeals to me. I think it's great. No, and I, I definitely not trying to put you on the spot. I, I, I agree. I think that, you know what I mean? Like whatever you love to do, you know, I, I'm all for it. Even if that's, uh, you know, gear fishing with a worm, you know what I mean? Like it's all, it's just fishing. So, um, but tell me this, uh, this is great stuff, by the way. I want to take it back, the delicate fly fisher. I want to keep on that because I want to make sure we, uh, we cover some of those chat. You were, you were on chapter three and, uh, can you tell me again, remind me again. So what was chapter, chapter one was, the history of 40 years, chapter two was the American influence. And what was chapter three in that book? Um, it then goes on to, on, on, on to tackle, which is uh, the, best, the best rod, the best reel, the best fly line, the best leader. And then it gets into fly tying. Oh, so chapter four is fly tying. Yeah. Uh, but, well, there are 23 chapters and they look at specific things like little sunken beetles, sunken terrestrials. Uh, and, 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 and that sort of thing. And uh, so that started that quest for the, the ultimate small stream fly rod. Now, Steve, Steve uh, for a while, went into center axis, where the reel, uh, the reel and the handle are combined into one. Uh, Sage very quickly dropped that idea, but uh, Waterworks now has a center axis rod and, oh, yeah. and reel that they... That they that that they sell, but uh, Steve uh, produced that in split cane. Yeah, I don't know of anybody else who is doing that. Um, and you'll find you'll find numerous pictures of that on my on my Instagram page. It's it's beautiful. It's it's uh, yeah, it's just artistry. But the problem is, if you can't remove the reel, is transporting it. Uh, you know, you've got to have a box because the reel and the, and, and the butt is, is all in one and that sort of thing. So, so it has, it has those limitations. Yeah. And just so people are aware you're on Instagram, it's at ed underscore Herbst three, four, six is your Instagram. Three, four, six. Yeah. Yeah. Good. good. Um, and so, uh, and then, and then I, when I, I first tried a Scott fiberglass rod about 20 years ago and after about three costs, I, I, I sort of handed it back to the owner. It was the sort of thing where you went into the back cast and you lit your pipe and you had a few few puffs and then you went into the forward cast. It was very, 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 very soft and floppy. Uh, but then the modern fiberglass fly rods came along. And um, down here, we well, everywhere, uh, you know, when I think of um, casting for recovery, the, the fly fishing community does a lot for charity and we – down here, we, we, we raise money for the Red Cross Children's Hospital, which is, um, and I, so I, did, I developed the idea of developing a reasonable cost fly rod, uh, no gloss, single piece, uh, two to three weight, 
Now, Ed Schink uh, and uh, Ed Koch used to fish little uh, single-piece fiberglass rods. They got the, the blanks from Conalon and people like that. So I got hold of a crowd, <clears throat> a crowd in New Zealand called CTS. And what's nice about them is they, they literally build the blank to your specs. And I said to them, I want a single-piece, seven-foot, three-weight, matte finish blank and they said they could give it to me i mean they can they can just about give you any color you want but uh, flashy fly rods are bad news particularly on small streams all right so they duly sent that to me and and i had a local rodsmith make it up and the sense i got was that the fiberglass fly rods and and uh were, had had made a quantum leap in effectiveness and ease of use and, and everything else. They might weigh a fraction of an ounce more than a carbon fiber rod, but they had a lot to recommend them. They were durable, gentle, and, and all the rest of it. And uh, I can't fish anymore, but I, I, I we, we, we built this rod for raffle, and I tried it, and I was just knocked out. It was just, it was just so crisp and just so lovely and and it was ba it was basically built for the for the person who 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 drives to within a few yards of of uh, of the stream and gets out and and you could literally keep keep it strung up in your car and uh, it it turned out to be a, a really really beautiful rod so and one sees that in the number of boutique uh fiberglass rod assemblers, if you would call it like people got people like uh, Chris Barkley as an example uh, produces beautiful small stream fly rods in fiberglass um, I, I, re I really covet his rods and and there, there are se several others gray wolf etc 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 so fiberglass really does have a place in in what I call the small stream ethos I mean I'd still like to build a, a one-piece sage dart uh, because I think that would be the lightest fly rod on the market, probably even reaching the, the one ounce that what's the name. And then fly reels, oh man, the Orvis CFO2. Uh, my my fly reel Orvis CFO2s lasted about 30 years and boy, were they battered. Right, that's a good reel. Are they still making that reel? No, no, there is a Japanese. No, they, uh, <clears throat> I think they had Abel built them for a while and then and then it dropped off the dropped off their list. There isn't an, an Almost exactly equivalent uh, made in made in Japan. You know, I have a cool little old reel that I probably picked up. My guess is it was in the '90s, maybe. But it's a it's a little Orvis Batten kill, and but it's a small, tiny reel, and it kind of reminds me. It's probably similar size to that little CFO too. Do you know that reel? That that mine's like the silver one. Well, what my my ideal, and I, I I'm still bewildered as to why it cannot be built is a carbon fiber equivalent of the Orvis CFO2. I mean, uh, America has a, has a huge carbon fiber industry for, for, for Indy. Uh, England has Formula One uh, fabricators. They're being used in, in Tour de France bikes. They're being used on motorbikes. So the technology exists to build a one ounce fly reel that you put half and, and that's what what I used to do for small stream fly fishing. You you're costing two or three rod lengths, so you don't need a full fly line. So I used to cut my silk fly lines in half and just use half a double taper. Uh, and then and then at lunchtime uh, when it 
got a bit soggy and, and was beginning to sink, I would just change over to the other half and I'd be using a floating fly line again. And silk, silk lines are just wonderful. They're half the diameter of plastic lines. Uh, they have no memory whatsoever. Uh, and they, 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 they're just gorgeous. So I would I would put half a silk line onto a, an Orbis CFO2 and then at lunchtime I would change over to the other half. Uh, and they, they, they were just so so delicate. So, so that all comes into the idea of the delicate fly fisher. But to get back to uh, fiberglass fly rods, obviously if you, were, if you were a regular plane traveler, you would need a four-piece. But, I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of blanks made, made like that, a lot of them in the East, and they're superb. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Daddy Flies, established in 1928, is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world. And you know I'm all about the history and fly fishing, which is one reason I am super stoked to have Daddy on as a sponsor this year. Long before I made my first order with Daddy, I remember hearing stories about the quality and the history and always wanting to connect deeper with them. So that time has come now, and I share the Daddy tradition with you. Located in Livingston Manor on the banks of Willow Weemock Creek, Deddy is your welcoming place on the creek or online. Their retail and online shop have a large selection of flies, materials, fly gear, outdoor lifestyle items, books, and more. Deddy Fly's inventory consists solely of products that meet every angler's demand for highest quality and service. Of course, they offer fly fishing and casting lessons as well as guided trips. For more information, visit Deddy Flies at wetflyswing.com slash Deddy or give them a call 845-439-1166. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy, D-E-T-T-E. You support this podcast by clicking over through that link to Deddy. Okay, let's get back to the show. So you mentioned, Ed, this is a question I have you know, you said you can't fish anymore. And I kind of asked this question because my dad, you know, is kind of the same way. And actually, you know, even my brother, I was talking to my brother, he's having some issues and he's really not able to fish anymore. What, how's that, how's that feel when you, you're at that point? You know what I mean? I, I'm assuming you're a little bit older. What, what was that like when you got to a point? Was that a gradual thing or how did that work? Yeah, I, I, I picked up a minor a minor version of, of low Gehrig's disease. It, it's, it's called uh, CRDP, uh, Chronic Inflammatory Demyelinating Polyneuropathy. It's a, it's, a, it's a slow-wasting disease which took away my balance. And um, uh, my friend Tom Sutcliffe uh, took me down to the river on a little camp stool and sat there and I, I flicked a little, uh, I used to use little sunken copper wire ants uh, with a strike indicator, and I flipped it upstream and caught a trout. But my heart wasn't in it. I, I, you know, to me, to me, the essence of small stream fly fishing. I mean, if if I look at Henry's Fork, look at pictures. To me, it looks like a like a big dam. It's huge. But if you if you small stream fly fishing, every bend is a new chess puzzle. It's not just a flat sheet of water for hundreds of yards in every direction. I'm not. You know, I'd love to. I mean, friends of mine make a pilgrimage to the Henry's Fork every year. But the small stream offers you a different chess puzzle around every bend. And that's that's what was missing for me. And uh, I, I'm, I'm a writer. Um, and uh, so what really, I used to mainly write about politics and, and that got fairly nasty. Um, and uh, uh, it was negative. 
So then one of the CPS committee members said to me, look, you've just got to get onto Instagram. And it's just been a life-changing experience for me because I've made what I could call online pen pals uh, from all over the world. Um, at the moment, I'm working with a, with a Tinkara uh, fisher called Lady Tinkarabum. And I'm trying to develop flies which would be have a tinkora fly which would be more more vulnerable and and possibly more imitative, albeit a bit more difficult than the traditional tinkora fly, which is just sewing thread and a and a and a partridge hackle forced forward. So that that that's what I, I find interesting now is to try and change flies, develop them. I mean, if you if you look at the hopper, for example, the contemporary hopper. It's simply a foam rubber version of the Madam X, which Doug Swisher and, and, and Carl Richards, I think, and and it, it it's got a it's got a caddis profile. It's got a it's got a bullet head and it's got got the wing going up. It might look like a stone fly taking off, but a grasshopper has a completely different silhouette. The wings sheath the body, and so um, uh, and and I was always looking for the silver bullet, and Art Lee gave me a silver bullet. He said that. The McMurray ant was the deadliest dry fly ever to shake hands with a leader, and I thought that's me. That's <laughs> me. So I, I scuttled off to the model aircraft shop, and I bought some balsa wood, and I tried to construct a, a, a McMurray ant, and it just <laughs> didn't work for me. And I had I had a leather punch, which they use for for punching holes and belts. It looks like a spur on a handle. And I had a camping mattress, a yellow camping mattress. So I just pu punched two cylinders out of the camping mattress and emulated the McMurray ant and added rubber legs and antennae. And, and then I added, I added golden pheasant tippet wings because all the Australian hoppers have golden pheasant tippet wings. And, and it proved to be extraordinarily effective. Right, right, uh, right. The legs were cranked. Um, and projected downwards, they were jointed. I used two different uh, sizes of rubber for the legs, and uh, it, it worked very well. The other thing, another fly that I've developed is is uh, an imitation of the little simulid larvae. I mean, if you go into those little streams uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, I've no doubt that on the rapids, you'll see all those little sausages, those little black sausages clinging to, to the rocks. And they, in some areas, they form a greater percentage in, in certain seasons, uh, certain certain seasons of the year, than Batus nymphs. And the question then is, who, why has nobody developed a similar larvae imitation? That uh, what is the guy's name? It's um, Jeff Morgan. Who's oh yeah, to a lovely book on small sea fly fishing. And yeah, yeah, we. That's what I was thinking about earlier. We had we had Jeff Morgan on the podcast. That's right. Okay, perfect. And and he he he's written an, uh, another book called Productive Trout Flies for an Orthodox Prey. And he makes this point that if 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 the simulated larva, the black fly larva, makes such an important part of of small mountain stream trout diet, why is nobody fishing them? Right. And uh, I developed a, it. Only became possible when UV light cured resin came along, and, and it's a very simple pattern. It's just a, a big bead at the bend, uh, a small bead in front, uh, wire cones on either side, and and you put the, the the resin on, and it sinks in the middle, and it produces a coke bottle shape. 
and uh, you've, you've got a, a beautiful, weighty, streamlined, translucent nymph, but nobody, nobody fishes simulant nymphs. So uh, there'll be a there'll be a chapter on that and and sunken sunken hoppers. I mean, Lafontaine was mad about sunken hoppers, but he never developed a specific pattern. He just waited a Joe's hopper. So those are the sort of things that uh, that that, uh, that 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 interest me. And 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 um, Instagram has really given me a, a new lease of That's life. That's pretty cool. I do a post. So Instagram's been that's pretty awesome to hear. So I guess summing that up, it sounds like. You know, um, you don't miss fishing that much. It sounds like that you've you've got writing and you've got all this other stuff. You're able, st- it's pretty amazing. You're able to still connect to fly fishing, right, without even having to fly fish. Yes, I mean, I, I it, it's a fading memory. I mean, I still have memories of all all the things and the funny incidents that happen and and the places we traveled to and the people we met. And I still I'm still friendly with those people. Instagram has given me a goal. My goodness, what am I going to post tomorrow? Right. Because I've run out of all I've run out of all the photographs that I used that I took of myself back <laughs> then. So I have to I have to think up, you know, and I do I do um, posts on new fly tying stuff and new fly tying tools and little ideas that I've come across or new new words and names. And it it serves me both as a writer and as a and and as a fly angler. And it's so joyful in a way because you you see pictures of people fishing and I mean there are a lot of grip and grins let's face that I mean but um yeah it's 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 just been it's just been a wonderful augmentation of my interest in fly fishing yeah no and I think it's it's kind of cool because I mean we all evolve right in our fly fishing myself included you know I mean there was a time where you know I fished every single day for certain periods of time you know what I mean and now with kids and all that stuff. It's like those days are, are not, you know, in front of me, although I love traveling, right. Going like building up for a big trip and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of evolved. So we're all doing that. Right. I think as long as we're, we're still having fun and enjoying it and still in the game, it's probably a good thing. Right. It sounds like you're still in the game fully. And, and in, in, in many cases as a parent, I mean, I think little boys are somehow not so much little girls i suppose but i mean competition fly fishing is changing that is is that they they're pre-programmed to be hunters and fishers uh, i mean they just they just engage with it almost immediately first time they hook a fish that's it they they, they fish fisher people for the rest of their lives and uh, it I must be great as a parent to, i'm not uh, to pass that on yeah, no, it, it is amazing. That's the cool thing. One of the cool things about kids. So, well, let, let's take it back. So we have your book in there. And if we're talking small streams, again, let's just think we're talking small streams. What would be your step-by-step? If somebody's kind of new to small streams, is there a, a series of like, okay, these are the, the you know, the, the modules or the, the sections that you'd want to think about? What would that look like? If somebody wanted to get everything, you know, all in one shot what what would it be what would be you mentioned the chapters on the history of your book but what would be that chapter of small stream fly fishing well what what i find unfathomable is i see photographs on instagram and elsewhere of people fishing uh small streams wearing crocs as footwear oh yeah i'm saying hello don't you have rattlesnakes in the usa (laughs) yeah and so um, uh, Gary Borger, there's a chapter in presentation where he talks about equipment is the only thing. Um, and it's all about concentration. 
if your backpack is digging into your back or if if your glasses are fogging up or if your there's a stone in your shoe or something you're you're not concentrating so that's the first step and 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 another example of that is coping with heat and cold uh, i mean if you're if not that we, uh, one thing that we have uh, and i always i always used to follow a guy called mike weaver uh, who fished all the little small streams in England, the, the Dart and the Piddle and the Cherry Brook. And what was really disappointing to me was when I looked at small stream fly fishing on Instagram, the skies are always grey. We always have warmth and blue skies. So um, you, have to, you have to cope with the, with the weather and, and that sort of thing. We've only had two snake bites um, that I know of in the past century in in South Africa, uh, I was the victim of one. The other one, uh, and it was it was a dry bite. Uh, snakes conserve their venom. They uh, particularly as they get close to winter when they need to to hibernate. And uh, he gave me a nip, and he he went away. You know, and uh, I got a fright. But I mean, my friend Tom Sutcliffe used turtle skin uh, gaiters. I, I used a different approach. I, I stuck a, uh, I used a soccer shin pad in front, which cups your ankles, and uh, a thin pair of socks, a soccer shin pad in front, a thin, a small uh, hockey shin pad made for children behind, and a thick pair of socks. And then over the top of that, I, I wore uh, wading gaiters made of a, a, a material called neoprene, which is a very fine version of of neoprene and any snake that could get its teeth through that the other thing is is that if you slip uh, and we weighed on a on a bed of, of football sized boulders if you slip murphy's law says the first thing that's going to happen is that your shin is going to hit a rock and it's going to be the sharp edge of the rock so why risk that i put a shin pad in front there and once or twice i've i've felt the the blow through the shin pad and I mean that's enough to put you off fishing for the rest of the day, you know, if you've got blood streaming. So, so keeping keeping hydrated, um, I would put uh, cold drinks, uh, athletic drinks in the fridge, freeze them solid, put them in the backpack, and and so I would keep hydrating throughout the day in the heat of what 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 we have right. here. Yeah, I bought a Lee Wolf type vest when I first started because that was what everybody was using, and and it, it put all the weight. On, on the nape of my neck, and, and we, we we carry cameras and all sorts of stuff. So I, I quickly changed to a backpack because that carries the weight on your shoulders. And most of the most of the fishing vests, if I can call that nowadays, follow that theme. Uh, and and then it's uh, just about visibility, being able to see your fly or see your strike indicator. I also use knee pads made of of neoprene, which which the uh, the abalone hunters use when they're sitting on coral reefs and digging abalone off, but made of this thin. So that, what that means is that I can cast from a kneeling position without any discomfort. And then the the, the other thing, uh, stealth is everything. The moment the trout sees you, you you're spooked. So camouflage clothing. And what I used to do without fail is I would use a roll cast pickup. Because if I, I've seen I've seen drone footage taken on our bright sunshiny streams of a fly fisher going into a back cast, 
I mean, it cuts through the water like a knife, the spray that comes off it. So what I would do is I'd, I'd go into a roll cast and then before the fly landed on the water, I would slide the line off the water, go into a roll cast, but not completed. The moment the, the line unfolded in front of me, I would then go into the back cast. So I, I avoided, particularly if you're using a big fly like a variant, and that comes me to another another thing, the greased leader. If you're using a big variant, say a gray fox variant, and the front half of your tippet sinks, on every back cast, you're going to dunk that gray fox variant. And on every back cast, when that gray uh, fox variant comes off the water, you're going to hear <laughs> And you, you can hear it a long way away. And, and I picked it up in, in one of Tom Rosenbar's books, and he said, when I fish pocket water, I grease the hell out of the leader right down to the fly. And he does that. Grease it with floating, with fly floating. With, with fly float. I mean, uh, a, paste, a heavy paste float, uh, floatant like mucilin is ideal. And um, what that means is that if, the, if any part of the leader is sinking below the surface, then it's uh, a victim of the currents and it's being pulled slightly this way or that and, and, and drag is setting in. And he specifically did it to, to avoid drag. And he said it made a big difference. And I've greased my leader ever since then. And uh, I would just walk past the, the slow and the still sections uh, and move on to the next pocket water uh, because uh, pocket water hides a multitude of sins. The fish is shallow. It's It's got a very small window. Uh, what it eats comes in and out of its window very quickly, so it doesn't have a lot of time to think. It, you know, it's it's not like it's not it's it's not like the Latort Spring Creek where the trout drifts under the fly for 10, 12 feet, uh, uh, scrutinising it. So, so that was the way uh, that I used to 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 fish with. Uh, uh, as I say, my favourite uh, reel was the CFO two, and then. Witchwood came out with an even uh, finer, smaller reel, Witchwood uh, field and stream. It was a couple of fractions of an ounce lighter, although not as rugged as the CFO2. And my friend, the Rod, Spitcane Rod maker, Stephen Boshoff, likes um, the, the Ross Colorado because he said it, he said the smallest. I mean, the reels today are just sculptures. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. They are exquisite. Well, tell me this, Ed, and I want to dig a little bit deeper into some on maybe some of your local waters there. But talk about this. I want to change the subject here a little bit and talk about you mentioned about your history as a reporter with the South African Broadcasting Company. You know, take us there. What was that like? And you talked about regime change. Were you there? Were you reporting on that? What was the regime change? Describe that for somebody who knows nothing about that history and how you reported on all of that. Well, up, up until 1994, it was the National Party were in control with what was known as apartheid. They called it separate development, separate and equal, but it was separate and unequal. And uh, the, the the black population didn't have nearly the amount of resources given to them in terms of schools and roads and infrastructure and houses and everything else. And so there was a concerted effort by the, the, the African National Congress and the international community. Uh, it came to a head when the American banks, we used to roll over uh, our debts every, you know, we'd, we'd borrow money for 
four, four years, and then at the end of the four years, we'd pay back the money and, and borrow some more. And thanks to the anti-apartheid activists, uh, the American banks uh, refused to roll over the loans. So we were in a, in, in a, in a very difficult place. And so the then leader, F.W. de Klerk, unbanned the African National Congress, and they um, they came to agreement. And there was a one there was a universal suffrage, one man, one vote, one person, one vote election for the first time in 1994. And the, by far the biggest section segment, ethnic segment of of the South African population was was black coloured and Indian South Africans. The white uh, population was was a, was a fraction of that. So obviously the African National Congress um, uh, won and and took control, and that was regime change. And exactly the same thing happened in um, uh, what was then Southwest Africa and is now Namibia. Uh, I was I was just a general reporter. I, I didn't get involved in the in the political side. That was left to the parliamentary team. Uh, so I just covered everything. Uh, sports, um, court cases, accidents, uh, I covered everything. What was uh, Nelson Mandela? Obviously, I mean, that's obviously a huge, what, what was, you know, what does that person mean to, you know, South Africa? Oh, he was, he was, he was huge. He was huge to the world. He was, you know, he was almost saintly, uh, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi and, and so on. And uh, he, he set a, a bar that was, incredibly high in terms of integrity and everything else. And unfortunately, since then, things have gone backward massively. I mean, we, we've cozied up to Russia. So since Nelson Mandela has gone away in 2013, oh, I guess he passed away in 2013, you're saying things have kind of gone downhill. Oh, massively. Oh, wow. There you go. Okay. So that's a, so there's that. And, um, and I don't even know, again, obviously, I don't know the geopolitical history there, and we don't have to get into that today. But I guess the, the you know, the bigger picture stuff is, yeah, I mean, this was a massive, you were there when, when these changes were happening for the better. And then, you know, and then your take home, I mean, how do you take, like you do, you're doing this five, do you take any of your broadcasting history with the South African broad, do you take any of that experience? How much of that do you take to what you're doing now with writing um, for the Piscator and all that? Well, um, I started off as a print print reporter and then moved to broadcasting in 1975. Uh, the, the National Party only allowed television in 1975 because prior to that they, it was a um, a very clerical sort of sort of party and they felt that that would bring in evil influences. Uh, so I, I got in right right at the beginning, but as I say, I. I started off as a, as a cam, what they called a camera reporter. I used to operate on my own, and then later I got a cameraman to help me. And as I said, we, we you know we get a lot of uh, maritime accidents, sinking ships, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I, as I say, I covered everything: boxing, cricket. The big games were covered by the outside broadcasting units, uh, but but really everything. And then eventually it became untenable because. Um, my office in Cape Town sort of effectively became a propaganda branch of the African National Congress, and I, I oh, felt wow. I, I couldn't stay. So I took early retirement, and I was I was out of work for a year. But um, yeah, it, it, it helps ref, it helps refine your writing as a, in a way because I mean, in television, you've got seventy seconds to sum up often a right. very often complex uh, situation. He said, they said, right. So. It, 
in, in, in some measure, it honed my writing. But I, I, I think, um, I mean, I've, I've read hundreds of books on, on fly fishing, and, and I think by osmosis, you, you, uh, you, you absorb the words. And yeah. Who's your favorite? We've had, uh, you know, a number of great writers on here, including John Girock. Who is your, do you have a couple of favorite writers in the fly fishing space? Uh, I've never been interested in fly fishing literature. I've only ever bought Jim Chagrin. I've only bought I've only bought hard two books. But I was very I was very lucky. Uh, I was very lucky because when I started fly fishing, uh, Ernie Schwabitz's uh, double volume Trout came out, and that's very very thumb. Gary, I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by by fly design. So people like Datus Proper, Gary Lafontaine. Um, the people, um, Gary Borger, uh, designing trout flies and, and, and that sort of thing. And if you, if you go on to the, the, the Cape Piscatorial Society, we, we, we've developed in ways that are, are somehow almost unique to us. The one, the one specific way that I can think about is the use of squirrel hair and dry flies. Um, we, we developed a pattern called the, the RAB and uh, Tom Sutcliffe, uh, who's our best our best writer, the Doyen of, of South African fly fishers. He added squirrel hair to that, and we've imitated insects which don't seem to be of much interest elsewhere. We've we've had a, a thirty or forty year history of imitating the the wolf spider, which is found in riverine environments, uh, and it, it meets all the criteria. I mean, Gary Borger said a fish only rises from the bottom through deep water and strong currents to a wide fly. And a spider is a wide fly, and it's got all those legs which are moving. So we, we, we've developed wolf spider imitations, and all that, as I say, is, is on, on the CPS website. Uh, two, two sections, patterns from Pescata and traditional uh, flies. Um, so a lot of a lot of very interesting re reading there uh, on flies and, and insects. Uh, we have massive hatches of netwing midges in spring, and we've developed a variety of flies to to develop that. I mean, they look they look just like smoke on the water. There's so many of them. They hatch in their thousands, and the fish go absolutely moggy. But we have no mayfly hatches because all our mayflies, like caddis, hatch at night. So. Um, we we've had to adapt to those circumstances oh, wow. with the flies we've developed. So there's no there's no mayfly. That is that just because of the heat? Very likely, very likely. They they tend to hatch uh, from uh, aquarium experiments. They tend to hatch on on humid nights, and and the thought is that that keeps their wings pliable. But I mean, even in America, most of a lot of caddis activities uh, is is at night. You know, particularly at twilight they. They emerge at twilight, they mate, they then crawl back under the water to lay their eggs, and a lot of that activity is is uh, is nocturnal. I mean, we have a microcaddis, which we see by the dozen scuttling around on the rocks, but you, you never see them hatching because they hatch at night. So, um, as I say, I, I think there are a lot of very interesting fly-tying ideas. At the moment, I'm working on one of Stephen Boshoff's ideas, which he calls the light bulb leg. And if you if you use very fine rubber legs, say hairline daddy long legs, and you put a tiny drop of UV uh, cured resin on the tip, what you do is you you create a pendulum effect in that leg. So 
there's, there's this very pliable thin leg with a weight on the end and that the current moves that around. The movement is everything. I think one of the strongest memories I ever have in that context was, a, was an ant hatch, an ant fall mating pool and and it was a hot muggy day we we have smallmouth bass and 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 uh, rainbow trout and it was a hot muggy day and the river was just carpeted in ants and there was no reaction whatsoever no reaction and i was standing next to a little little side eddy and i spotted a little bass and clumps of dead ants were floating over it and were ignored. And, and that was a lot of protein. And every now and again, one struggling ant would come into its orbit and bang, it would hit the struggling ant. And, and so movement, movement is everything. I mean, we, we, we've watched from, uh, from clifftops and that sort of thing when, with people fishing hoppers. And the hopper drifts, and the moment you twitch it. So the whole idea of my fly tying is what I call something struggling. Uh, it's something, uh, and if you put an ant in the water and have a look at it, you don't leave it there for long because its struggles are frantic. And if you've got any sort of heart or soul, you quickly yeah. rescue the ant. <laughs> but I mean, they really do struggle, and and so do hoppers and and, and oh, all right. the rest. Everything. So everything. Uh, if if you can build, that's why soft tackle. And, and I, I just want to point out to one sort of. Eureka moment that I had as a small stream fly fisher and, and, and the consequences of that. Now, the definitive book on small stream fly fishing is, is Dave, Dave Hughes's book on catching trout in small streams. And he was fishing one of those, um, uh, those little cascade streams uh, in, in British Columbia, I think. And he said that the, the, the stream, there was just no reaction. The river was as dead as a doornail. Uh, it was almost as though there were no trout at all. And all his patterns, all of them, caddis, mayflower imitations, just didn't work. And he'd been reading Sylvester Neems's books on soft tackles, and he tied up a couple of size 12 um, uh, partridge and oranges and that sort of thing. So he took one out and, and sort of last chance threw it in. And to his amazement, chart from all over the place. And he, he said it settled in the umbrella posture. And, and that stuck with me, the umbrella posture. And he, he said it, it just got attacked again and again and again. And I thought I have to tie a, a fly with the umbrella posture. Now, the, the idea of something stuck off in and half out of the water, it's, it's people, of uh, fly anglers have always known that as a, as a vulnerable stage. The French had the Pont Audemore, the British had the mole fly. Only two people, only two people were working on suspending the fly vertically. The one was Vincent Marinaro and the Ring of the Rise. He, uh, he, he had what he, he uh, I've forgotten what he called it, but he used a riffling hitch on a long shank hook to hold it vertically in the water. The second person was Frank Sawyer, who was fishing uh, Alex Buren's Two Lakes dams. And he noticed that the chironomids would come up and they'd bounce against the, uh, against the surface film and they would sit there vertically wiggling. So what he did was he threaded the hook, the leader through the hook and tied a bit of wool on the other side. So the hook was free to pivot around the nylon 
and it, it would have that little shivering movement that the that the, the Chironomid uh, pupa has when it's hatching. And I took that a step further. I I developed a thing which I call the slip knot emerger. And, and at around that time, Art Lee's book came out on dry fly fishing, and he spoke uh, about the surgeon's swivel, which was basically um, a double overhand knot, and the, the it was it was meant to stop the the tip of twisting when fishing big big tackle variants. So he would have the variant threaded onto onto the, the tippet and it would bang up against this knot. So it was free to, to pivot around the tippet. And I just took that idea. And then uh, a wonderful book, Fly Fishing Outside the Box by Peter Hayes, he spoke of the post the post egg laying stage of the betis. The male and the female go underwater, the female lays the eggs, they let go and they drift upwards and they're completely inert. They've close to death. And that is the most vulnerable stage. And suddenly I put two and two together. And I thought the umbrella posture that Dave Hughes uh, experienced was actually trout reacting to what they thought was the post egg laying upward drift of the Botus mayfly. And so I just tied a, um, a soft hackle and slipped it onto the onto the tippet, tied a, a double overhand knot, cured it with a bit of knot sense. And then I did something else. I, t I added two dangling uh, hairline daddy long legs uh, strands at the bottom dangling downwards. And what that, and, and I greased the leader. So, so the fly is being held vertically by the greased leader. And I used the Orvis big eye hook, which is basically a, di a Daiichi hook. And so it was free to pivot around, around the tippet. And then you had, it was hanging vertically, suspended by the, the right angles by, by the tippet. And these two tails at the bottom were being activated by the water and I would mottle them. And I, I, I just changed my fishing because all of a sudden I could see the fish rising and they would start to rise much earlier than I expected because they could see it coming towards them. And the tails were wiggling, being caught by the water. And... Uh, that was I, I, I switched from fishing little sunken beetles and, and sunken copper wire ants with a strike indicator to that. And I went up to a little town of Rhodes, which is sort of uh, uh, like our Montana. It's got streams which never see an angler from one year to the next, hundreds of, you know, 100 miles of streams that are never fished. And I asked one of the guides there, I said, what's your, your go-to searching fly? And he said, a clink. I said, just add rubber tails to your clink hammer and you will double your catch rate. And he looked at me a bit skeptically and he came back and his eyes were out on stalks. He said, I've doubled my catch rate. I said, that's because you added so much movement. And he was so impressed that he now ties what he calls the Ed Hamer. So if you're, if you're fishing a Bob Wyatt uh, Hare's Ear Emerger, if you're fishing a clink hammer, just get some ultra-fine rubber legs and add them to the bend of the hook and see what it does for your fishing. And it all, it, it all comes back to movement, struggling and, and vulnerability and not being able to fly away. That's it. No, I love that. And I, uh, we had uh, Jerry Meyer on recently out of the Driftless uh, Angler, and she mentioned the same thing. I think what she call it, kind of twitching or, 
Yeah, she said the same thing, though. As soon as you do that on the fly. And I guess the driftless angler is probably similar type of fishing, maybe a little bigger, but they have the similar types of, you know, as the small stream fishing. And then Trout from Small Streams was Dave Hughes, that book you're talking about. So this is awesome. Yes. A quick break for a word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty subscription fly box. If you need a unique fly selection for a new water you're fishing, or if you want to get started fly tying the easy way, Smitty's has you covered. They will find out where you're fishing and supply you with a custom fly assortment. And Smitty's has been producing high quality flies and materials for over 30 years, and you may not realize it, but Smitty's is connected to Round Rocks, who is the sole supporter to Sportsman's Warehouse and has tied and supplied millions of flies over the years. I was at Sportsman's this week and picked up a couple of dozen flies, some chubby, small and large dry flies, some terrestrial patterns. The quality was exceptional. That's one of my struggles is the dry flies. So I love looking at these little guys from small little tiny flies that I can barely see with my eyesight. It's the big ones. And these are the same people who are delivering and tying these flies to your door with Smitty's Fly Box. It's a great time right now to get stocked up for the season. You can head over to smittysflybox.com right now to take a look at their selection of flies and monthly boxes right now. Let Smitty's take the guesswork out of choosing fly materials and patterns right now. This is also an easy way to support this podcast and a small business who has been producing high quality flies for many years. Check them out right now. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. Okay, back to the show. We're going to take it out of here in a little bit. I had another random question that I just thought of, and it's more just my my curiosity of, of the world. But so you're in South Africa and I'm just, you know, as you look up, I mean, I look at the size of it, right? In Africa, the, the continent is probably like double the U.S. size or more. But can you drive, have you ever, could you just drive from South Africa like north and go up into some of those other countries? It, it, what, what's that like? Have you ever done that or traveled around Africa? No, 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 I, I, I haven't. And, uh, you know, you, you need a passport for each country. And, yeah. And, uh, is that kind of a, what is that thing like? I mean, you did some report. I mean, what, you know, whether now, current or past, is that kind of a safe, could you do that? Could you, you know, just kind of cruise around? Are people doing that? Or is that kind of a not, maybe it depends on the country? A lot of people do it and a lot of people do it safely. But uh, South Africa has 50,000 murders a year. Right which I don't even know if that's a lot. I mean, I think the U.S. is actually the probably the capital, probably the leader and stuff like that, right? That's the thing about us is that, you know, we're not, I don't think we're doing a good job either. But yeah, I don't even know if 50,000 is that a lot. It sounds like a lot. Yeah. The sort of mass shootings that, that characterize the U.S., these are individual individual murders. Um, so it, it's, it's it, look, we, I mean, Cape Town is one of the top tourist destinations in the world. Right. And uh, it, it's a safe environment. You arrive here, you you, you ring the Cape Piscatorial Society, you book a beat on a river. And oh, you do? The guards will take you. Break that down for us, because I think it is. I mean, I would love to go to South Africa. You know what I mean? I would love to go to, you know. And uh, so if somebody was coming there, what, what would they do? So they could actually reach out to this the, your website and get some information there. Surely. I mean, we a couple of years back, uh, FOSF brought out Lee and Joan Wolf and Jim Casada and Gary Borger and, and a, a couple of those people. And, and Jim Casada said to me, when we, we took him to one of our streams, he said, I've got five streams like this close to my house. 
So uh, you, you don't really come to South Africa for, for trout fishing. Our, our dam fishing is spectacular. I mean, double-figure trout, 10-pound trout, and nothing unusual in our, da- in our, in our dams. But those are, those are man-made impoundments. They're not lakes. Right. What are the species in South Africa? What are the, what's the main species uh, you're browns fishing? And, browns and rainbows with, with rainbows strongly predominating. We've got a, one or two streams that have, have browns, yeah. Okay. And what is your home? If you had to say, you know, your home water, what was it back in the day? Do you have a home stream or home area? There were two or three. We were within, I'd say, an hour's drive uh, to from Cape Town. Uh, the one is, is, is close to the road. The other is a little further, uh, a little further. And then one brown trout stream, which is also uh, about an hour and a half's drive from Cape Town. Uh, and if if you you know if you phone the Cape Piscatorial Society, we're available nine to five on the phone. Uh, they will and, and you will book a beat. Oh, good. And that so beat, book a beat that beat will be will be two or three kilometers, two miles say, and and that will be yours for the day. You you will not see another angler. And I gather that's one of one of the problems that that you you have in in, in the USA is is river rage and and. Yeah. Uh, uh, drift boat, drift uh, boat. guards getting, getting into fights with one another. And- we just talked about yesterday, I was talking with Jeff Liske, we're setting up a, uh, a steelhead alley trip to the New York and Ohio. And uh, yeah, we were talking about it. I said, hey, we're trying to plan the dates. And he's like, you know what? We probably want to stay away from the weekend. You know, and, and the weekday can be busy too, but it's like definitely the week. I mean, so yeah, we deal with, that's one of the, the issues, right? Is that so many people are fishing it but i would say this is the great thing about small streams is that it gives you an opportunity to do a little bit of hiking and get away from the crowds even on your busiest streams up here well i think i think that's why blue lining has become so 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 popular you know you you look at google earth you find a little stream and and you get up there and it's it requires uh, all the angling skills that you need on a bigger river but you've got the place to yourself uh, and you, you see wildlife, which is there because there's not a lot of human presence. And the fish are small and spooky and, and they, they demand the best of you. And it's delicate and um, uh, it, it's, just a, it's just a lovely day. Yeah. No, this is great. Well, let's take it out of here in a quick little summary um, here on some, you know, again, we'll keep it on the small stream. So if somebody, let's think, if somebody's fishing, their small streams are getting up. We talked about gear. So we know your your rod your rod is the what is your go to rod seven foot two weight is that what it was seven foot two to three weight three three is a nice compromise if there's a little bit of a breeze you can you yeah. can still so still weight. get into that uh, but but on a naught weight you 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 you'd struggle a bit short short rods cast tight loops full stop uh, and and you, you know if you uh, Joe Humphreys uh, made a video about what he called br- brush fishing with, with the rhododendrons crowding you in. I mean it's it's the most astonishing uh, video I've ever watched. I mean he's he's casting with, with the bushes literally touching the top of his head and catching. So you you can't fish a ten or eleven foot rod in that circumstance. Certainly not casting. So uh, and and. Then I'd probably go for a. I'd ask Chris Barkley to build me one of his short fiberglass rods with a ventilated um, Paul Young type uh, handle, which I, I must say I like the look of. That's right, Chris Barkley. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely we're going to look up Chris Barkley for sure. So, okay, so you got that. And then what would be? You've talked about flies a lot. What's your? If somebody was going out on small streams, what would, I know it varies, but what would be your one fly? 
<laughs> I've told you about the Slipknot Emerger, where, where the fly is, is on the greased leader, and it's basically just a, a soft tackle pivoting around the tippet because it's just strung on a straight uh, straight eye hook and it's it's butting up against that with with rubber tails that would that would be that would, but what what has made a huge difference and if I can just tell a, another tale and I and I warned you that journalists never stop yeah. talking. <laughs> Dave Whitlock, oh man, oh, I yeah. owe so much to that man. And when I started fly fishing, I started dry fly fishing and, and there were days when nothing happened and I went to the to the elders at the Cape of course I, and I said, Well what do you do on a day when nothing's rising and your dry flies being ignored, they said, you have to fish a nymph. So I said, well, how do you know when the nymph is being taken? And they said, oh, you watch your line tip. So I watched the line tip and nothing happened. And then Dave Whitlock brought out a chapter in the Fly Fisherman about um, strike indicators. And I just thought, oh, man. And I, strin, yellow strin was available back then. And I did a loop-to-loop, -loop, two perfection loops, threaded them through one another, and, and put a, a, a bit of poly yarn in between the loops and tightened it. And I was fishing this big pool. It was called Donkerhut, which is Afrikaans for dark pool. And I, I, I threw my, my nymph up and I was watching it and it, it slowed down. And I mean, it was almost as though everything slowed down. I was, it was, I was almost trance-like. And I, I thought the strike indicators slowed down. And I, Almost in slow motion, I sort of lifted my rod and I, I'd caught my first trout on the nymph. Oh, wow. And then su subsequent to that, uh, you know, I was always looking for the silver bullet and, and, and uh, uh, Mike Weaver, who wrote on the small streams, wrote about a, a little beetle that he called the black bug. And he said when nothing else worked, he put on this little black bug. It was like a little size 16 beetle with a, with a, with a peacock shell back and, and no legs, nothing. And he said, even the most supercilious trout could not resist the little black bug. And, and as Gary LaFontaine said, the best searching fly is a beetle. So I started fishing slightly weighted beetles with a strike indicator. And beetles are present in prodigious numbers in spring in, in Cape Town. It's called the Feinbos biome. But one day, sort of round about midsummer, my beetle wasn't working. And I looked up and the branches above me were crawling with ants. And the ants were always there. So I started tying little copper wire ants. And what copper wire is nice because it's malleable. You can squash it flat into an oval. And so I would fish a little copper wire ant with a strike indicator. And uh, I wrote an article called Sunken to Fishing Sunken Terrestrials, which was on the CPS website. And it was about fishing sunken beetles and ants. And they were absolutely deadly. And that's what I fished until I, I developed uh, that vertical uh, slipknot emerger uh, based on the ideas of Marinaro and, and Frank Sawyer. But if the wind is blowing upstream, then hallelujah, I fish a variant. It is just the most wonderful thing because it comes down like thistledown. It gently drifts down and then it lands and there's a bit of a breeze and it twitches and it moves sideways by three inches. Um, Edward Ringwood Hewitt had, had his spider and his variants and he was, uh, uh, Al McLean was an absolutely huge fan of variants. 
and they, they, they just excite fish. I think they excite fish here because we have a very high population of dragonflies and they track dragonflies. You can see them following them in the air. So if, if there's a bit of an upstream breeze, I, I fish a, um, a variant and or otherwise I'll fish a little sunken terrestrial or one of my little simulid nymphs or, or that vertical emerger of mine, which is and always with a greased leader. And nowadays, because of competition fly fishing, you've got all these different colored monos. And with the greased leader, it, it leads your eye in. I mean, there's no point in trying to follow a, a size 20 ant on the water. I mean, you, 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 you fish it with a strike indicator. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. That's awesome. This is good. And, uh, and keeping this going, so what is, uh, you know, these are some random, a little bit more random questions, but I always love to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of art in here. But do you have any uh, mu on the music end? Do you have back? I'm not sure if you listen to much music uh, now or in your past. Is there a type of music you like to listen to, or a, you know, a person or a group? Well, I would answer that by saying you it, you know it's a well known fact that cows give more milk if they listen to Mozart. Oh right, right. Mozart makes you smarter. But it's a, it's a known fact in dairy farms. If if you play Mozart, the cows produce more milk. <laughs> I, I just love it. I just love it. It's just a dream. Yeah, Mozart. Dream I love that. Yeah. This is why I always love asking that question. I don't feel bad that, to ask that a lot because it gives me a, a chance to actually, and you'll see this probably when we do our Instagram stories, we'll, we'll get a little Mozart in there for everybody as we... Look, I, I grew up I, I grew up in an era of the animals and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Dire Straits and all oh, of right. that. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's all good. Uh, all good. I mean, uh, you, you look at you look. You always ask yourself, what what is the most memorable opening bars of a rock music concert? And you have you you have to say uh, die the, the, the die straits, and you have to say Brian Adams at, at Wembley back in '69. Oh yeah, what was Brian Adams? So Brian Adams in '69. What was what was his song in '69? Brian Adams. It's called but back in. I think it was called back in '69. Oh, okay. This is good. Okay, good. We're getting some good, uh, some good firepower here. I mean that that just blows you away as a spectacle. Oh, it's summer of '69, right? Yeah, yeah. Summer of '69. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good. And, and, and it was it was the Wembley. It was oh, the Wembley at Wembley. At Wembley. All right, good. So we got yeah. summer of '69. We got maybe uh, we got some Mozart. We we have potentially some Rolling Stones. Some of my favorite music for sure. So this is good. So we're doing good here. What about? Um, I'm I'm guessing you don't listen to many podcasts. Have you? What's your take on podcasts? Have you? I, 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 I forgive me. You know, when 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 you're 80, you a lot of stuff passes you by. And I looked at some of the the interviews that you've done, and I'm I'm missing something. I, I really have missed out on a lot. I, I feel almost a sense of melancholy because I've I've always I've I've always immersed myself in fly fishing books. And I, I've never immersed myself in fly fishing audio. My my friend, my friend Stephen Boshoff sent me a, a, a podcast on on the history of terrestrial fishing, and I, I really do need, uh, you know, Ed Koch and Schwabert and and Vince Marinaro and Charlie Fox, and I, I would love to listen to people from that era talking. And I would love, and and what blows me away on on Instagram is that the number of woman guides who are Fishing in the we are taking parties to the Amazon and for sailfish and for top and uh, and uh, you know that that just one of the great things uh, 
aside from the technological advances that competitive fly fishing has, has brought us, is the friendships that have developed. I mean, the, the, the Spanish guys host our, our, our youth teams. They go and stay with them. Some of our guys go and stay, have made friends and have had Czech uh, and French. Uh, we've had Pascal Canard, the French world champion, come and visit us. We've had uh, Yuri Klima, the river god, as he was called, uh, visit us. Uh, we've had Eduardo Ferrero, who is captain of the uh, Italian fly fishing team. Uh, and watching those people is like a kid having the opportunity to talk to and and play and watch Cristiano Ronaldo or, or, or one of their, their favorite basketball players or whatever. So it, the fact that it has created those friendships across continents has always been, um, you know, something which has uh, had great appeal to me. Yeah, I love it. Well, the good thing about this is with the podcast is that uh... – you know, you could start any time. So, so we've got a podcast with uh, 400 interviews, so you could have a listen and, and check it out. And oh, I must, I must. I um, I listened to to one of the recent ones uh, with with a woman who who was talking about a program that she was working on, and it was it was fascinating to me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've got a lot to look forward and, and and a lot to thank you for. Good. Oh yeah, no, you bet. And I will say. You know, we've had actually. I'm doing a trip with Craig uh, Richardson. We're doing a Euro back to Euro. He's uh, we're doing a Euro school in uh, this summer, and I think he's from South Africa. And also, Yaku Lucas is a South African. There's, so there's some younger people out there that are really uh, big, you know, big players in fly fishing. I'm not sure if you know Yaku or those guys, but they're, you know, I guess it comes from the Seychelles, right? A lot of that saltwater stuff. That's kind of a that's kind of a big part of of what's going on. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of guys uh, sort of around the world who are guiding in the Seychelles and Alphonse and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I call, uh, <laughs> I mustn't be jaundiced, but I call Euro Nymphing High Mars fishing because you're fishing over the hill. You've got these long casts with an 11 foot rod and a 20 foot, and the fish has got no chance of seeing you. So right there, you, you, you have a huge advantage, and it explains why it's such a successful technique. What worries me, I talked about the intergenerational schism, is, you know, we've always worked with what goes back to Cotton and Walton, you know, what, what insect is hatching this month. And the guys down here are adamant in, in South Africa, the competitive fly fishing. There's only one thing that matters, and that's the color and the size of the bead. So we've moved away completely from, well, a lot of them have, Although they're, they're, they're all very skilled. I mean, they could fish a dry, dry sedge with the best of them. And what's been wonderful for us is that the, the Capers Control Society is the youngsters that have come through on, uh, uh, through the ranks are now on our committee. So uh, we've, we've, we've benefited in, in, a, in a sort of corporate sense as, as well. But the guys tell me that, you know, the, the, the top Spaniards who are, you know, they, one guy, works as a fireman, so he works at night and he fishes all day, every day. And they are adamant that what is what is important is the color of the bead. And they will fish different colors of beads uh, and see which is the one that has taken the most. And this comes back to Gary LaFontaine's um, theory of attraction. Yeah, give us that. Let, let's leave it. LaFontaine was probably, he's bigger than life, you know, so he's one of those guys. What is that theory? Can you describe that and take us out of here with that theory? The, the essence of it was that the, the color of the ambient light 
affected the extent to which a trout was, uh, was, was attracted to a fly. And how, how that came about in some measure was he had he used scuba divers. And uh, they were diving in a pool which was up against a cliff face, a sort of almost orangey cliff face. And the setting sun was bouncing light off that orange cliff face. And the only fly that was, was working was an orange one. And this is, we've known about this since Skews' days, because Skews couldn't work out why when there was a blue-wing olive hatch at, at sunset, uh, the orange spinner was the most successful fly. It was a, um, uh, because it, it, it resembled nothing like what was hatching in substantial numbers. And the moment I read about that, I just immediately said, hello, Gary LaFontaine. And his other theory of attraction is that if you're fishing in a small cloistered Blue Ridge uh, Mountains little brookie stream with, with you know with with green all over it. A green fly would be and 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 he he he's his favourite dry fly for that sort of thing was the lime true, which has a which has a green a green centre section. Gotcha. So you're matching the colour of the of the substrate essentially. No, no, just the the, the ambient light. Gotcha. So uh, in 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 a forest, the, the light would be greenish. Uh, at sunset, the light would be would be quite warm and orange. So that's where orange. orange. Oh, you know what? This is amazing. I I love this is what's cool. Ed, my um, you know, I love to give. I always love to give a shout out to my dad. He was a kind of a a steelhead guide in our area, and back in the day, was pretty well known. But he he came up with a fly called the Max Canyon, and it's uh you know with us it's known you know it's an orange and black steelhead fly, and in uh, orange it was counter coloration, which back in the time was kind of new for steelhead, but but also the orange color was kind of new. You didn't see it, but I think, and you know what, during low light, during early morning, late at night, that was a killer pattern. And I'm thinking that's that's part of it, that orange silhouette, the nice summer sunset. The other thought I had in that context is that all fish love the eggs of their own their own kind and all other kinds. And I, I think in there's, a, there's quite a tinge of orange in, in shrimps, saltwater shrimps in some of them. And then, of course, the orange the fish eggs are orange. So, uh, as I say, when when my friend put this McFlylon orange uh, strike indicator on and greased it and had the same trout rise to it three times, I thought this can't be coincidence. There has to be there has to be a reason, and that's when I, I started. Uh, and and we, we have a fish called the yellowfish, which is a sort of golden version of your whitefish. Uh, and it's 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 the most accessible fish to us, and overwhelmingly, the 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 top fly is a, is a, for, used for them is is a nymph with an orange bead, and and the other thing the other thing is that we found is that uh, our hopper patterns if you put in a bit of orange rubber in the legs, it is far more effective. It's absolutely, you know, you don't fish a hopper pattern on, on Cape streams without orange, or either completely orange legs or a section of orange in, in, in the legs. Yeah, orange is good, yeah. I th- and uh, and you'll see a lot of examples of that on my, my Instagram page. So I can't say I like it because the further away you, you, you get from the color of the natural insect, the less comfortable I get. I mean... You, you fish don't have hands, so they strike either because they're hungry or because they're curious or they because they're aggressive. 
And uh, we, we had, when Pascal Canard was here, he caught a, a fish and he let it go, a trout, and it went and it sat under a rock. And he said, I'll catch that fish again. And I mean, he's, he's, he's a, he was a three times world champion. He, oh, wow. He landed his nymph literally a millimeter in front of that trout. And as it got next to the trout, he gave it a tiny twitch and the fish hooked yeah. it. The fish took it. Yeah, that's amazing. Cool. Pure reflex action. It's it's, it's like like a like a cat responding to a piece of wool dragged across across the carpet. But but I, I I think I think the orange which your father incorporated in that fly was it was was a big component in its success. That's right. Yeah, because it was orange and black, and there was a little bit of white too. But it was uh, the orange was the one that really stuck out. And and actually, the fly I liked, I used to. I actually changed it, and we had an, another fly called the Dark Max, and then I then a fly was named after my dad, the Stewart, and uh, and I loved the Stewart because it was all black and orange, no white at all, and it was just like a dark little speck in the water. And I'm not sure if you know much about the summer steelhead, but they're, you know, they're pretty unique in that they're very trout-like. Well, they are trout, but they are they they're very uh they tap and they they mess with your fly a lot, so it's kind of a fun a fun deal. So. Um, so cool, Ed. Well, I feel like I could talk to you for um, for a few more hours here. So I think we might have to get you back on the show and do a follow up here down the line if you have time. Um, but uh, yeah, just give us a heads up in the next. Uh, we're kind of in June, July now. What, what's the rest of this year look like? Are you going to be just uh, doubling down? Always, yeah. I'm a pensioner. <laughs> your book, your book's coming out, right? That's the biggest thing. Well, it's going to come out in dribs and drabs. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. A chapter, chapter every format. It, it's already up. Delicate fly fisher. If you go onto the articles section of the uh, of the Cape Piscatorial Society website, you'll see a, a folder called the Delicate Fly Fisher, okay. and the cover and the introduction and the chapter list and the first chapter, which is, as I say, is historical and autobiographical, is there. And the next the next chapter, which is which is rather a sad and poignant story, called Memories and In Memoriam, will be up on. Uh, and on the 14th, and then uh, on the 1st of July, we'll have the Rod chapter, which will probably be the biggest of the lot, uh, which looks at this ongoing development of Stephen Boshoff and myself uh, and our search for the for the ultimate small stream fly rod. Oh, wow. This is amazing. So you're pretty much doing, pretty much over a year, you're kind of rolling this book out. Is that kind of how? Yeah, it'll be 26 months, basically, 24 weeks. This is cool. So we're going to follow this journey. We're going to put a link to that, and then every two weeks we can follow that. And, I'll, and we'll we'll get you out at, uh, like we said at the beginning, Instagram, uh, at ed underscore herbst346. And then the uh, uh, piscator.co.za is where we can check this all out. And, um, yeah, Ed, this has been amazing. I uh, definitely more than I was expecting, so I appreciate you for you know coming on the podcast and all the good work you've done over the years. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, staying in touch with you. Thank you. Very grateful. Thank you. There we go. Wetflyswing.com slash 485. You can go over there right now, 485, and you can check out the links we talked about. Check out the society. If you're interested in in small streams, this is a great way to check out some of the work that uh, Ed's put together over the years, and uh, and you can do it right now. A couple of quick reminders before we get out of here. Uh, If you get a chance, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you're using if you've been loving the show. It's a great way to support what we have going and uh, and a great way to connect with us. Let's give a quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Cameron Snary. Cameron says, hey, Dave, I live in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. Favorite fish to chase is Great Lakes Steelhead. 
closely followed by some amazing resident brown trout in our region. Keep up the great work with the podcast, Cameron Snary. Cameron, I hope that I pronounced that last name right. If not, let me know, but I appreciate you for checking in by email. If you're listening right now, you want to get a shout out on this podcast, connect with me and, uh, and get a chance to uh, engage and leave a potential question for an upcoming guest. You can do that anytime, Dave at wetflyswing.com. All right. Well, what do we have here? Where are we heading next? What do we got going? We've got some stuff going this year. Uh, Cameron mentioned uh, Great Lakes. We're definitely heading out there. Let's take a quick peek at where we're heading next on this podcast so you have a feel. Um, yes, we are turning right on. we got some unique stuff coming up here. I uh, just want to highlight a couple random. We're doing a lot of stuff here. But Lily Renzetti uh, Wednesday is coming out. If you want to hear Renzetti uh, the story of how they created this amazing vice. It's been over 50 years, and uh, it's amazing podcast. Also, uh, next week, we've got a really cool, unique episode. Zane Gray is here. Uh, not Zane Gray, actually, but Zane Gray, uh, the person that knows the most about Zane Gray. Uh, we're going to hear about this uh, unique person and uh, and what, has, uh, what his life was like and how it influenced a lot of people around the outdoors and in fishing and in fly fishing. All right. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, I am excited to get into the next one. I'm going to let you get out of here really quick. And uh, if you get a chance, please connect with me anytime. Dave at wetflyswing.com. Would love to hear from you. If you've been listening forever and you're listening to the very end here and you haven't ever checked in with me, this is your time. You can do it right now. And I would love to hear from you by email. If you get a moment, uh, always love to do that. Uh, so please do that if you get a chance and I'm going to get out of here. I hope you are having a great afternoon, a great evening or a great morning, wherever in the world you are, even if that's South Africa, even if that's Pennsylvania, Idaho, uh, Ontario, Canada, maybe way up in Alaska, way, way, way up in Alaska. If you're up in Alaska, way North, definitely check in with me. I'd like to hear who's our northernmost listener in Alaska. Uh, and how far up uh, do we have listeners in Alaska? All right, so that's going to be the call today. If you're up in Alaska, way up north, give me a shout out, and uh, and we will talk to you soon. All right, I'm going to get out of here. Thanks again for checking in today. I will see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.